It's good to see each of you and let me add my welcome to the others and welcome you to church this morning, the Lord's house on the first day of the week, uh, together gathered around his word. We've already sung enough theology to study for months and months and months, but we're going to open our copy of God's word and we're going to learn from that as well. And just again to say thank you for coming and uh, for those of you gathered by way of live stream, we thank you for your faithfulness uh, to continue to meet in this way. Things will change. It feels as if things are changing. Uh, I write down on my notes every week since that week last March where things changed. Today is 301 days. So we've got uh, 64 left to go before we have an anniversary. I'm hoping and praying that that might be the Sunday where things feel remarkably different. But that's between uh, the Lord and what he knows and what he tells and what he doesn't. This message, I think, will play into that. It's all about asking the why and the how long, but tempering all that with waiting and listening. So um, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk, and that's right after Nahum, and uh, this is toward the very end of the Old Testament, right before Zephaniah, and we began a study with this, if you were not with us, uh, this past week. The Wednesday before that, we had somewhat of a preliminary introduction, but... The study itself has to do with this very short three-chapter minor prophet. Habakkuk was a, was a prophet during the period of time. If you're familiar with the, with the timeline of Israel's history, this is toward the end. The, the top ten, the northern tribes of Israel had already fallen to Assyria. Uh, but Habakkuk is writing just before the two southern tribes would fall to Babylon. Uh, very trying time of Israel's history, time of judgment, and uh, a lot is going on and none of it is good. Um, But Habakkuk was similar to the prophet Jonah, if you remember Jonah. The way they were similar is neither one of them were approving of the way God was handling things on the ground with his covenant people. And where Jonah was griping about what God was going to do for Nineveh, Habakkuk is struggling with what he's going to be declaring the the Lord to say about what's happening, uh, not with Assyria, but with Babylon. The book basically opens, we studied this last week, with two questions. How long and why? If you've got it open there before we read what we're going to study today, look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you not hear? Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? How long and why? That, that was last week's message. And we learned that as far as what these questions had to do with, uh, Judah had basically dug a crawl space or a basement under its lowest point morally up to that place in history. It was bad. It was really bad. And the whys and the how long had to do with them and their sinfulness. Habakkuk was answered by God, and that's where things get interesting, because instead of punishing Judah directly for her sins, we learn that God is raising up an enemy to defeat them, who it looks as if they're far worse, morally speaking. What we've got on our hands is is what it looks like uh, God using two wrongs to make a, a right. We'll get into that again a little later on. But the question was, why do you tolerate this and how long is it going to go unpunished? So so to simplify, last week, Habakkuk's problem with God, so it seemed, was his timing. It's not fast enough for me. How long? And his tolerance. Why aren't you doing something? Something should be done. God hadn't idly waited by. He was doing something. And we learned in his answer, when he was told to look and see and wonder and be astounded, something's going on that you wouldn't believe if I told you about it. That's the coming evil known as Babylon. But we explored the similarities of his day and ours. 
by trying to compare the fact that this man Habakkuk so long ago and so far away was working with, uh, what did we call it? Um, unprecedented circumstances in uncertain times. And how we've just about fed up with that written on every email we've received from any company or, 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 or whatever. We can't fix your TV because of the un- circumstances of COVID. We're all backed up. We can't deliver your package. You can't come and visit. You can't this, you can't that. It's all crazy. We don't know what to do. That's kind of been our lives for the past several months. Unprecedented circumstances and uncertain times. Same was true with Habakkuk. And in a much worse way. So we thought that even though the time is, is, is massive between us, it's not all that different. Well, what we'll learn this morning, we're going to read here in a second, beginning in verse 12, that this was only Habakkuk's first complaint and God's first answers. There's actually two rounds of this. We're going to read his second complaint and then God's second answer in what we study today. The guts of this second question, the second complaint is that the cure is worse than the disease. Habakkuk is going to say, okay, I prayed that you would straighten us out, but I didn't have this in mind. And I think it's too much. In fact, I think the situation we're in now is better than what we're headed into if this is truly going to take place. So how can you be the holy, loving, omnipotent God and do this? That's the second complaint. So let's let's read it. Let's pray and then we'll study it. This is verse 12 of chapter 1, Habakkuk's prophecy. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, have you ordained them as judgment? And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his drag net. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father in heaven, we need to hear from you. Make these words live. Open them to us. Make them understandable. And Lord, be merciful. And may we obey. May it not be said that we are like your covenant people of the Old Testament who were described by you as stiff-necked, rebellious, and idolatrous. Lord, give us that heart of flesh, not of stone. And Lord, may we bend and bow in humility 
and dependence on you. May we live by our faith and not puff ourselves up in pride. Teach us today. Be our teacher. Make us good students. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as often is the case, I want you to see this here right at the at the opening. You know, he'd already asked a question, Habakkuk that is, and he'd already received his answer. But don't you think it true that often in the scriptures, when we ask God a question and the God answers our question, doesn't that usually lead to more questions? How many times has God just answered your request and you said, you know what, that clears it all up. I think we're good for now. Or does usually it just pile up like a snowball rolling down the hill? The more questions he answers, the more questions we have. So that's exactly what's going on here. Um, the guts of this complaint, the cure is worse than the disease. But just like when we read scripture, the error of our understanding of God is exposed by who he truly is as we read. The same as such here. So more confusion is the result when God answers Habakkuk. So another round of complaint. But first, in saying that, let me show you some indications in the words that we've got here. I want you to keep your Bible open. We're going to look at the words here that I believe point to a healthy relationship between Habakkuk and his Lord. It might look at first sight like this guy's got a problem. He needs an attitude adjustment. Who does he think he is? Not to just question God once, but twice. Is he complaining? Is he grumbling? Or is he groaning? Like we talked about last week. Well, look at what he says. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. I don't think he's being cute here. I think he's addressing God as eternal. Look at that. Everlasting. Right there in verse 12. He also refers to him as holy. He also refers to him as rock. In verse 12. If this is him being cute again. He's only making it worse. He's making fun. I don't think that's the case. I think he's describing this rock as a foundation. I think he's describing him as holy as being the only one. He's describing him as everlasting as he's always been and he always will. So you could say that these reference... This man's belief that God is powerful. Would you, would you, are these the words of weakness? Everlasting, holy, rock? One who can ordain judgment and reproof? No. This is his strength. Then he also says, look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So this God doesn't see evil and doesn't look it wrong. Not that he doesn't know that it's there. Doesn't dwell. It's not as if it passes up. Any of you in this room have the same disease I've been diagnosed with, where if I see something messy, it's kind of hard to walk past it. Most of you go, "No, that's not me. I can see it." I used to know a guy who would say, "Can't see it from my house." And I would say, well, what about God seeing it in his? <laughs> this people, you know, God cannot look on evil or wrong and just walk away or sweep it under a rug is what's being said here. So if you add that to the idea of his being powerful, he's also good. Who would overlook something than a, than a corrupt judge? He's not a good judge if he overlooks things, right? Now, this is important because of the age-old accusation against the character of God when they want to bring up the bad things that actually happen in this world that he said was good. They want to say, you got one of two problems. Either God is not strong enough to do something about the bad things or he's not good and he lets them happen anyway, right? So this prophet Habakkuk, in addressing the God he's about to complain to, has no problem with his being all-powerful and all-good. Which is actually the basis that gives God the right to punish his people for their sins. 
because he is powerful and because he is good, he punishes evil, even if it's own chosen people that do it. Does that make sense? So we've, we, we want to make sure we look at Habakkuk in the right way. He's much better in his attitude than Jonah was. Jonah was way off base there for a while. And we watched how God patiently and graciously dealt with a bad attitude. This one's much different. So because they're all sinners, the Babylonians and the Judeans, God has every right to punish them. Truth is, God's goodness and his power give him the absolute right to use a heathen nation to judge his covenant people for their sins. And just while we're here, if your explanation of the gospel begins with John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that they don't need perish everlastingly, but have life, you're starting... A massive conversation in the middle. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand. Okay, I hear what you're saying. And I understand about a cross and a Jesus. I just don't understand why it's necessary. What have I done that's gotten me into so much trouble. That it required God to crush his son on a cross for me. That's why sometimes it's better to start at the beginning of the story. Where sin entered the world in a garden with a man and a woman. And God cursed the world, the man, the woman, the snake. And his curse of wrath has been on the world. And all are sinners and none are righteous. And they all need forgiving. Then the cross makes sense. The cross makes no sense if there's not righteous judgment. So we want to look at a situation where God's actually doing what he promised he'd do. And punishing evil. We want to say, time out, how can you do this? He has every right to do it, whether we like it or not. So Habakkuk isn't weak. It's quite the opposite, I think. He's basically saying, aren't these guys worse? You know, my complaint is with Judah, and we're bad. He's not claiming that they're innocent. He's just claiming that Babylon is worse. And if you're going to be fair... Why are we getting the same whipping that they should be getting? Looks like they skipped the whipping. And we get it and they don't. So what we've got here, I think, is a very good example of a man who believes in the righteousness of God. But can't square it in his heart. I think that's where mature Christians live most of their lives. I trust you, Lord. There's no problem with me understanding your strength and your goodness. But the way you've chosen to deal with this, and the way you've chosen to deal with that, and the way you've chosen to deal with this, confuses me. I don't get it. It doesn't look fair on surface. So the next four verses take up the image of a Fishing net. This is the way that he chooses to describe what he knows to be true of this awful group of people that are going to rise to power and actually destroy and cart off the inhabitants of Judea and take them to Babylon as slaves in time. Look at how he describes it. He's saying to God, you make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Like helpless animals. That, that's what we're reduced to. And then he is describing the coming enemy. Brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. Gathers them with a dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad at his big catch. Therefore he sacrifices to his net. And this is, this is where he's just layering on how pathetic this situation is. He says these people who are absolutely abusing not just the natural world, but the humanity of it, like they're fishing with nets. When they're done with it all, they sacrifice and worship to their nets. As if their nets are what brought them what they've got. They make offerings to the dragnet. In their mind, the reason they live in luxury is because of 
their ingenuity, their, their fishing skills. His food is rich. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing our nation forever? I don't know if you've ever watched any of these videos where they just show uh, e- either it's cutting down trees or emptying the oceans or, or uh, whatever it is that just seems to be over the top. And you want to say, why? This isn't fair. You can't do this. Um uh, before too long, this is going to mess up my air, my water, my whatever. But I, I, I'm intrigued by the, the illustration he uses here. It's easy to, to see and understand, especially for me. I like to fish. I'm familiar with uh, the, the death match known as fishing net versus little fish. It's not a fair fight. Um, I think most people that like to fish and have fished for a very long time probably picked that up when they were children. Uh, it usually sticks with you. And usually as a child, you either decide whether you like it or you don't. I went hunting once. <laughs> I haven't been again. But I've spent a lot of time fishing. And when I was very young, uh, I had two nine-foot surf rods, two sand spikes, a five-gallon bucket, a bicycle, and a little chair. And it was about two and a half blocks between me and the ocean when we'd go to the beach. And Mom would tell you I'd spend all day there. And I didn't have a budget and I didn't have a license, so buying lures wasn't going to work. That's when I learned to fish with live bait. You catch the little fish that the big fish want to eat. And the little fish will do the job for you if you do it right. Some would say that's barbaric. But it really works really well. But the task is this. You have to catch the bait before you can catch the fish. If you can't catch bait, you can't catch fish. And that really separates the fishermen who can get bait and the fishermen that can't get bait. And on Oak Island, where all this took place, it's little mullets that you need. And a cast net is the perfect tool. And when they're running, they're everywhere. And when they're not running, they're nowhere. It's like a switch. It's on and off. And one September day, I had talked Mom into taking me to the end of the island, on the west end, at the point it's called. That's where the inlet wraps around into the intercoastal waterway. And it changes a lot because of the way that the winds and the water and the sand will move around. But I can remember it being flat and wide and it just went on and on forever. And there's plenty of room to set up your fishing. But you had to catch bait. And there was no bait that day. You couldn't find it. And... After you stop standing there looking for the bait, then you start blind casting, which just wears your arms out. And if you're familiar with a cast net, it's a net with with lead weights around the edge. The way you throw it, you use centrifugal force and it opens up like a dome, traps the fish. When you pull the rope, it closes up like a jellyfish almost. And you drag them onto the shore and you're good to go. There was no bait. Mom's not coming back for a long time. So it's going to be a long day. But I noticed um, on the back side of the dunes, and it only happens with the big high tide that happens once a month. Sometimes these little tidal pools will fill up with water and they'll retain that water through maybe the whole tide cycle. And there were a bunch of birds sitting all around this puddle about the size of this room. And there were some cranes sitting there too staring at the puddle. And I thought... There may be bait in that puddle. And when I got there, it was full of bait. And they had no chance with me in my net. I filled up that bucket with more than I needed probably. And I fished all day with those poor little mullet who got stabbed with a hook and eaten by bigger fish. You ever heard of shooting fish in a barrel? I've never shot fish in a barrel, but I've caught mullet in a puddle with a cast net. That is what this is describing. 
Habakkuk is saying, Lord, we have no chance against them. We have no defense against this this net is the way that it's described. How are you going to sit by while they come drag us away in their nets? Interestingly enough, there are Babylonian reliefs that's art on the walls of stone that depict netting captives and dragging them to Babylon. But that's exactly what is happening here. So, really, his question hasn't changed. The question is, why? And how long will you let this go on? So let's move on to verse 2. The Lord answers him again. And we don't know how much time was between the question and the answer. But here's the answer. Write the vision. I'm about to tell you. It's not there yet, but here's your instructions. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. So basically, he's told, write it down and get it out. You write it so big that the person who runs by can get the message. That seems to be the easiest, simplistic way to understand what it means when he says, so he may run who reads it. Others have said it means so you can get it in people's hands and they run and deliver it to others. That may be a way to look at it. It wouldn't be untrue. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It'll happen, but not immediately. It hastens to the end. Once it's begun, it, it won't take long. And it won't lie. What do you make of that there? If it seems slow, wait for it. We'll get back to that. I'm pretty sure that most of you aren't any aren't any better at waiting than I am. It will surely come. It will not delay. It's been appointed by God. You can count on it. Even if it seems late, it'll take place. So timing seems to be all over those two verses. And it's God's timing, not our timing. And God's timing may seem completely foreign and strange to us. But it's going to happen nonetheless. Now, I want to pause and actually skip over verse 4. Because verse 4 seems to be between information having to do with the answer to Habakkuk's questions. And really is the basis and the point, the key verse of the whole book. And key verses within the New Testament. So let's skip down to 5 and then we'll go back to 4. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, that, that's hell, that, that's a fire that keeps burning and gets bigger and wider and eats up more and more. Death, he has never enough, gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So it's this unstoppable force. Uh, I was listening to Alistair Begg. A lot of these times when I teach through a book, I'll listen to other men do the same. And when he got to this part, he was talking about the uh, cartoons at the beginning of the Monty Python with the big head that would gobble up the bus and the train. <laughs> um, you'd expect that from a, a pastor who came from across the sea. Same as the reason why he calls this Habakkuk instead of Habakkuk. Different ways they pronounce things. But the idea is is the same. It's a stomach that's never full. It's a fire that that that's never burns out. So that's what's coming. That's what the vision will entail. It's coming, but you wait until the picture's clear. It's referring to the Babylonians who will be judged or used to judge Judah. But the way that's described there in verse 5 is almost as if the judgment's written on the wall for this group too. Because God is never kind to the arrogant man who's never at rest, who's given over to wine. And the translators actually wrestle with that. Some go with wealth. You may, you may see wealth instead of wine. Either way, both of those can consume those that uh, put too high a priority on them. 
So again, there in verse 5, God takes sin seriously. And it's going to be Persia that will take out Babylon the same way Babylon took out Assyria. Same as the reason Rome fell. And it's going to be the same as America. If America is going to be the one that puffs up itself instead of living by its faith. That's verse 4. Look at verse 4. The key verse of the whole book. Key verse for the New Testament. It's mentioned in three different places. Paul uses it in Romans and Galatians. And it's used in Hebrews whether he wrote that or someone else. But look at it. Behold. And that... That's the transition. Here's, here's the meat of the message that's yet to take uh, visual form. His soul, whose soul? The sinner's soul. Is puffed up. It is not upright within him. You could say this would refer to anyone. It could refer to Judah. It could refer to Babylon. Any soul that's puffed up. But this is being used of the enemies of God. And then there's the transitional word, but. The righteous shall live by his faith. This is a verse that was used by both Calvin and Luther as pretty much the basis of the, the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. Because that, that, that says it all. You've got two choices here. The reason why this is used, because it's so succinct an explanation, but this is just another way to say what we see all through the Bible. Uh, Psalm 1, right out of the gate, gives you an, a, a visual of two different ways to live. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On it he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers, brings its fruit, its leaves won't wither. And then the big transition, the other half of the psalm. The unrighteous are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. As if to say, one lasts, the other's forgotten. One is saved, the other's doomed. That's Psalm 1. You get to the New Testament, you get the broad way and the narrow way. Everybody's on the broad way, there's a few on the narrow way. Then you get to uh, Jesus mentioning the, the story of the, the, the builders. One builds on the sand. The other builds on the rock. Uh, it's kind of easy for me to think through that after having uh, helped out in digging a 600-foot ditch to bury a water line earlier this week. It took about, I don't know, one scoop of a mini excavator to find water. You need water these days. You don't have to go very deep. We had a regular river running down the property by the time it's over. And it was incredible how you can pile up this mound of wet dirt. And if you try to step on it, you go straight down to up to about your knee. It's like the perfect uh, mixture of sand and enough clay to hold the water in it until you try to stand on it. And it's an absolute mess. Or you could build your house on a foundation, a rock. We're going to do that with, with concrete and footers so that you know next winter when we get a lot of water, the thing doesn't slide further down the property. You look at that and you think any idiot could see this, but it just proves that the whole world, by the blindness of their sin, are idiots without a guide, without help, without being reborn. You build on me. You don't build on yourself. There's two ways to do it. Right here, it's described as pride. Behold, his soul is puffed up. That just means that he's putting all his eggs in his own basket. I will handle this. And then the other, the righteous, well, they live by their faith. And what is the faith? That is putting all the eggs in another's basket. Who can be trusted? Who's, what did he describing as? The Holy One. From everlasting. The rock. There's where Habakkuk's eggs are. Doesn't mean he can't be confused or isn't close enough to the Lord to ask why or how long. But God tells him, you know what? You're right. You said it. Verse 12. We won't die. So if you're not going to die, how are you going to live? 
by your faith. That's how you'll get through this. That's how you, Habakkuk, and all who will survive will get through the worst they've ever seen. Two ways to live. Now let me show you. This is just to fast forward the clock. Because sometimes I think illustrations are really what shed light on complex theological things. And sometimes a well-placed story can work well. Sometimes I can spend too much time talking about a puddle on the beach and minnows in a cast net. The best illustrations come from the scriptures themselves. But if you just fast forward the clock to when this vision that may seem like it's late but it's coming. And when it gets here you'll need to live by faith or you'll be swallowed by this machine Known as the enemy. Turn over to Daniel. You'll have to go backward for that. Daniel's where this story is fleshed out. You might just want to make notes. It's up to you. I've got it here and I can read it. But in the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Daniel. And if you've got your timeline. Remember we talked about this on Wednesday. The timeline that's in the Sunday school classroom. The other wing here that shows you where everything lines up. Well, you've got Habakkuk, who was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And then you've also got Daniel toward the end of that. They overlap slightly. But listen to this in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, we talked about him. He was the bad king that replaced the good king, Josiah. And the prophet had told Jehoiakim, it's coming. This is going to happen. And here we're reading that it actually does. Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Do you remember that? And in, in after reading through the Exodus and the conquest of the, of the promised land under Joshua and defeating everybody that stood in their way, unless there was sin in the camp. Well, that's not at all how this happens. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, lower G, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, the best of the best, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Remember, Chaldeans and Babylonians, same group of people. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that the king drank, and they were educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Some of you just went, oh, I know Shadrach. Well, that was their pagan name. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You've got to kind of pause the picture on those three. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the king's wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And the rest of the story goes on in detail to describe a young man who purposed in his heart to live by faith. That's how it works. The better part's in chapter 3, though. Skip ahead. I don't say the better part, but maybe the more dramatic. This is verse 13, about halfway through. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? I'm going to take for granted that you know about the golden image that was set up. And everybody had to bow down and they played the music, right? Specific music where they named out all the instruments. 
Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of, here they are, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I'm the net. You're the fish. There's no chance. And you should know that. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what you call an ultimatum. This is bow down or be burned up. Maybe your God will save you. But I love the fact that the boy said if he doesn't, it doesn't change anything. We're not going to worship your God. We're not going to worship you. So this is way. This is how one is living by their faith. So here's what I wrote down. The same God who sovereignly raises up the Babylonians to judge the people for their sins against him is the same God who was sovereignly at work in the lives of Daniel's mom and dad who raised him up to make up his mind in advance to stand up to the pagan king of the Babylonians and say no. Now, did Habakkuk have this information? No. Did Daniel's mom and dad have this information? No. They just lived by faith. They brought this little boy into a world that people probably said, why in the world would you want to have a child in a world like this? Because this young man and his friends are going to stupefy the nation that the world can't do anything with. Interpret their dreams. Orchestrate a return in time. God's got more going on than we can see from where we're sitting. It'd be wrong of us to judge him from what it looks like from this little speck on his big green earth. But this God is sovereign over kings and he's sovereign over young men. The unstoppable nation described in Habakkuk 1 is brought to its knees in Daniel 2 and 3. Now I know that was long ago and far, far away, right? But what does this have to say to us? It has a lot to say to us. Let's look one more time at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's the difference between these young men and the king that stands before them and dictates ultimatums. Not puffed up on your own righteousness, but by faith in the righteousness not your own, is what this is discussing. The righteousness of the Son of God who died in our place to satisfy the wrath of His Father on our behalf. That's information we know. Because this prophecy goes way down the stream. The faith that we live by that will ultimately save us was paid for on a cross that Habakkuk didn't know anything about. But we know everything about. And then that verse right here is used to help us understand what the cross is all about. It's the basis of that faith. It's the object of that faith. It's putting... Our trust in the righteousness of another for our vindication against a holy God who's punished or promised to punish sin. So it's back to those two choices. The binary choice of man since the Garden of Eden. When the only choice was a tree of forbidden fruit. Now we've got all types of ingenious ways to distance ourselves and ruin ourselves with God. But do you trust in God or do you trust in yourself? If it's Joshua saying, choose this day 
whom you'll serve. If it's printing on the back of a piece of money, in God we trust, but living nothing like it. You know, these are unprecedented times. Uncertain circumstances. It's not the same. But how do we know our enemies not being raised up? And how do we know that our children won't be instrumental in carrying the truth to preserve the promised remnant that will be part of the bride that God's been collecting for His Son for generations? We don't know these things. So what do we do when we know we're not going to die? We live by faith. And how America fits in with this, I have no other idea. No more than... Habakkuk knew. And it's on the platform of the faith we live by that we bring our questions to the ear of God Himself seeking answers. Even though the answers He may give us are painful to hear. Which would speak of His judgment. But at the same time, knowing by what we've seen in Scripture and how He reveals Himself, of His mercy. Which speaks of His glory. So what we learn today... And what teaches us is that in chapter 2, God has told Habakkuk to hang on. Wait for it. And I don't know if it felt like forever for him. It won't be late. God promised that. It'll happen at its appointed time. But he knows he's not going to die. So now he has his choice on how to live. While he waits. So the point we have today that we should take home is we must learn to wait with Habakkuk. There's that waiting that I mentioned earlier. I suppose you could ask yourself, if you just think back on your prayers of the past year, is God telling you to hang on? Which is a nice way of, which is the way a parent tells their child to wait when their child is upset. If the child is impatient... You say, wait. If the child is upset, you say, hang on. Is God telling you to hang on? One more thing. Look back at verse 4, at the first word. The word is behold. And it was the trigger word to signal that what's following is the beginning of the guts of the message. The answer to Habakkuk. He's upset He's asking the Lord. He's being told to hang on. And then there's this behold word that gives him a glimpse to the beginning of what's going to happen. To hold him on. Tide him over. The word behold means to look. Or to see. Or to listen. Right? It's an attention getter. Listen up. That's, that's behold. So not only is Habakkuk being told to hang on, to wait. He's being told to listen. And this is where when I was studying, I was saying, Lord, that's the two hardest things you could ever ask of anybody. We're prone to say, why and how long? And God tells us, wait and listen. You feature that. Wait and listen. You might feel like that's been your whole life from being children in your house. You listen up, you listen. And you wait. That's basically it. And then we walk off to our room and we say, how long? And then we get with our brothers or sisters and we say, why do you suppose that is? But what we're told to do never changes. Our Heavenly Father's the same way. Wait and listen. And you might be thinking, I know this is the truth, but it's just, I've had about all I can take. And I know it. And there's certain times it seems to come in spells. And uh, I don't know what, the way you felt watching the news on Wednesday. That, that was rough for me. I've been to that place a dozen times over ten years or so. I, I, I knew where the people were when you could see the different places in the capital. And uh, just trying to understand why that made sense to anybody. Um, even if you disagree wholeheartedly with someone who's duly elected, you don't tear their office up. 
to post on the internet. That's another thing that just bewilders me. When we were kids, we, we kind of hid the things we thought would get us in trouble. Now we put them on social media. I don't get it. I don't know where this ends. I don't know in what stage we're in. The confusion or the chaos. Where does anarchy? I don't know. But I know we're not going to die. Those that know the Lord. So how are we going to live? By faith. That this doesn't count on us. It counts on the one who's eternal. The rock. The holy one. Who knows it all. But right now he's not telling. And in time we'll see more. But how are we going to be faithful? When we get bad news. When all our plans change. When we lose somebody that's close to us. When our kids won't speak to us. I don't know. I do know. We live by faith. Sometimes God does the exact opposite of what we think He would do or should do. And it might be no better described than the situation where you got a cross in the middle and two on the sides and it's two thieves and they're having a conversation and one is saying something he shouldn't say and the other corrects him and says, you know what, we're hanging here because we deserve to. This man's done no wrong. But he's the one that hung in shame, forsaken by his father to pay for our sins. That shouldn't have happened. But it did because of God's goodness. So a God who would do that to make sure that nothing else goes wrong is someone we can live by faith in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on our country and on our culture that is drowning in the same thing that so many other cultures thought made sense but eventually drown them as well. We can't live by puffing ourselves up. Being our own God. Writing our own rules. Doing what we think is best. Your word clearly spells disaster. To the end of that road. Lord may we live by faith. In the son of God. And his finished work on the cross. Lord, I ask that you bless each home in this church family and their outlook on the coming year. Bless their families, their relationships. Lord, bless their thinking. Bless their hearts. Lord, may we be found useful. May we be found faithful. May you call us righteous. Count us righteous. By living, by faith. We ask this in your name. Amen.